Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 18, Jolly Saint Nick. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, on our final episode of the year for 2022, we're going to talk about a saint's who will hopefully pay you a visit this Christmas. The early Christian bishop, prolific wonder worker, and real-life Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. Like many figures from the early church, Nicholas comes down to us through a handful of historical records and a wealth of popular stories. There isn't much we can say for sure about his life in history, as his earliest biographies were written centuries after his death. So I'll give you what we know pretty firmly before we move on to the more colorful legends. He was a Greek from... Anyone care to guess? Anatolia, the region of the Roman Empire now known as Turkey, from which so many Christian heroes and heroines arose in the earliest centuries of the faith. His birth is traditionally placed around the year 280, and it's thought that he came from a wealthy family. Rather like Saint Roche, he lost his parents at an early age and gave his inheritance to the poor. From there, he traveled around the Holy Land in Egypt, eventually being ordained a priest before returning to Anatolia to become bishop of the city of Myra, not far from where he grew up. Nicholas lived through one of the most dramatic eras in the history of Rome, the age of the Emperor Diocletian, his great persecution of Christianity, and the rise of Constantine the Great, who had become the first ruler of Rome to favor the Church throughout the Empire. If you'd like to learn more about this exciting period, you can go back and listen to episodes 1 and 7 on Saints George and Helena, respectively, which go into a lot more detail about this crucial turning point in history. Nicholas himself, as a priest or bishop during Diocletian's great persecution in the first decade of the 4th century, is said to have been tortured for refusing to renounce the Christian faith. He was set free when Constantine took control of the empire, and proclaimed toleration for Christians in the year 313. More than a decade later, we hear of Nicholas attending the first ecumenical council, the first gathering of bishops from all over the world, in the history of the church, the Council of Nicaea, in 325. It was at this council, overseen by the Emperor Constantine himself, that the church hammered out exactly what she meant by Christ being both human and divine, both man and God. 
Today it may sound like an academic point, but at the time, this was an all-important battle for the future of Christianity. On the one hand, there was the faction that we now recognize as Catholic and Orthodox, those who believed that Jesus Christ was both fully human and fully divine. But on the other hand, there was a very influential faction within the Church that saw Christ as a great man and the Son of God, but not equal to God himself. Because the leader of this heretical faction was an Egyptian priest named Arius, its adherents were called Arians, and their beliefs, Arianism. That's Arian spelled with an I, not a Y. It has nothing to do with blonde hair and blue eyes. Though the Arians themselves denied it, the upshot of their teaching was to deny the divinity of Christ, to reduce him to the status of any other teacher, prophet, or hero with claims of divine parentage, of which history has more than its fair share. By the year 325, the rift between Catholics and Arians had grown so vast that a council was clearly needed to work out their differences. So the two factions met at Nicaea, another city in Anatolia, to decide the actual beliefs of the Christian Church. I've given you all this detail so you can understand one of the most amusing stories about St. Nicholas, the story of what he allegedly did at Nicaea. It's said that when Arius himself, the author of Arianism, got up to speak at the council, Nicholas sat and listened with ever-growing irritation. He was incensed at the heretic, who was, in his view, blaspheming the divine nature of Christ. And as Arius continued to ramble on, expounding his beliefs about the Son not being consubstantial with the Father, and so on, it became too much for Nicholas to bear. He sprang to his feet and boxed Arius over the ears. The other bishops, shocked at his sudden outburst, dragged Nicholas before Constantine. But the emperor left his punishment in their hands, so they stripped him of his vestments and locked him in a prison cell to await judgments when the council came to an end. Repenting of his wrath, he prayed for God's forgiveness, and was then visited during the night by Christ himself and Mother Mary, who asked him why he was imprisoned. Nicholas replied, Because of my love for you. Thereupon he was given a gospel book by our Lord, and an omophorion, that's the vestments of an Eastern bishop, by Our Lady. In the morning he was found unchained, dressed as a bishop once more, reading the Gospels. When word reached Constantine, he had Nicholas set free and restored as Bishop of Myra. 
Now, I'm not saying that this story is true, and I'm not saying that what Nicholas supposedly did was commendable. The legend of Nicholas boxing the heretic doesn't crop up until the 14th century, a full thousand years after his lifetime, so it's almost certainly a figment of the medieval imagination. In fact, it's not even clear if Nicholas attended the Council of Nicaea at all. His name doesn't appear on the historical lists of bishops who were present. But still, it's a classic story, and I'd be letting you down if I didn't share it. You can even find it painted on the walls of medieval churches, in addition to countless modern internet memes. The legend itself is not an endorsement of violence against those who disagree with you. We're told that Nicholas felt sorry for what he'd done. But it is an amusing little anecdote all the same. Make of it what you will. That's about all we know, or perhaps don't know, about the historical St. Nicholas. He's said to have died on the 6th of December, 343 after many decades, as Bishop of Mira. But even if we can't say that much about the historical 4th century prelates, there's a wealth of medieval mythology about his miracles and holy works that has shaped our understanding of him down the centuries. Most of the later tales about St. Nicholas concern his charity. Whatever we may or may not know about his career as a bishop, he has universally been remembered as a great minister to the poor and needy. In one famous tale, Nicholas met a poor man with three daughters, who wanted to marry, but could not afford their dowries. The girls were left on the brink of being driven into prostitution, or even slavery, because of their poverty. But when Nicholas learned of their plights, he paid their dowries out of his own pocket and saved them from lives of misery. For that reason, he's sometimes considered a patron saint of unmarried people and of women forced into prostitution. In another story, Nicholas learned of three innocent men who had been wrongly sentenced to death. He rushed to the place of execution just in time to find the men lined up to die, and seeing that there was no time to lose, the saint ran up to the executioner and grabbed his sword right out of his hands, just as he was about to strike the first blow. Nicholas demanded the three men to be released, and he was so widely respected that his order was obeyed. In time, the official who had sentenced the men to die learned of what the bishop had done, and repented of his false judgments, doing penance for his act of injustice before gaining absolution from the saints. A third tale connects Nicholas with sailors, another group who counts him as their patron. Sometime during his reign as bishop, a ship got caught in a storm in the eastern Mediterranean. Knowing his reputation for holiness, and his history of helping those in need, the sailors called out for his help, even though he was many miles away. At once, Nicholas himself appeared on board the ship 
and guided the sailors through the storm, only to vanish as soon as they reached safety. Arriving in Mira, the sailors went to church to give thanks, and found Bishop Nicholas waiting for them. The saint told them that if they too gave their lives to God, they would always be able to help those in need. Perhaps the strangest of these tales is the legend of Nicholas raising three boys from the dead. There are many versions of this story told across Europe, but all of them involve the same basic plot. Three boys, or young men, are killed by a cruel villain, only to be brought back to life when they're found by the traveling saints. The Greek version has them as theology students, murdered for their money by a greedy innkeeper. But in the grislier French version, three boys are chopped into pieces and left in a vat of brine by a cannibal butcher. French folktales are always this dark. Don't let the Disney films fool you. Either way, Nicholas arrives on the scene and brings the boys back to life in one piece. Our final legend takes place after Nicholas' death, but confirms his status as a protector of children. This story is set in the Byzantine Dark Ages, the period from the 7th century to the 9th, when the last bastion of the Christian Roman Empire in the East was fighting for survival against the rising tide of Islam. During this chaotic age, Arabic pirates from the island of Crete raided the region of Mira, St. Nicholas' old bishopric, and plundered the church where his relics were housed. Thankfully, they didn't get the relics themselves. But they hadn't just come for gold and silver. They also carried off slaves. One of their victims was a boy named Vasilios, who was hauled off to the caliphate and sold to an emir. Back in Mira, his mother mourned for his loss, and even with Christmas approaching, she could find no joy. On St. Nicholas Day, the 6th of December, she was praying at home when suddenly her son vanished from the emir's courts where he'd been serving as a cupbearer and was miraculously returned to his mother. Ever since then, there has been a special bond between Christian children and their beloved Saint Nick. Speaking of the relics and feast day of St. Nicholas, both were essential to the spread of his cult away from Anatolia and into the West, where he would eventually become the Santa Claus we know today. The story goes that in the 11th century, while the Muslim Turks were conquering Anatolia from the Byzantine Empire, turning it into Turkey, a band of Italian merchants broke into the church at Mira, where his relics were being kept, and stole them away to the town of Bari in southern Italy, which had, ironically enough, been a Byzantine colony only a few decades earlier. 
The local Orthodox clergy were none too pleased with these Catholic foreigners looting their relics. But this was right after the Great Schism between East and West, and sadly, neither side was too sympathetic to the other. Anatolia was a war zone, and the Italians may have thought they were keeping the relics safe from destruction at Muslim hands. The same justification the Brits would later give for keeping artifacts from all over the world in the British Museum. Justified or not, the relics would remain in Bari throughout the Middle Ages, turning that city into a major center of pilgrimage, and making St. Nicholas a household name across Western Christendom. Over the following centuries, Europeans developed many, and I mean many, traditions surrounding the Feast of St. Nicholas on the 6th of December. Some of these customs are still familiar today, while others have died out over time. But all have a place in the Christian tradition, both East and West, that has kept the saint's memory alive. One of the most entertaining was the medieval custom of the boy bishop, which is pretty much what it sounds like. Cathedrals all over the West would jokingly elect a choir boy as bishop on St. Nicholas Day, leaving him to quote-unquote reign for the next three weeks until the Feast of the Holy Innocents on the 28th of December. Needless to say, the boy didn't really become bishop, and he wasn't allowed to say mass. But the custom survived as part of the festive tradition, despite many efforts by actual bishops to rein it in. In England, boy bishops wouldn't disappear until well after the Protestant Reformation, being finally abolished by Queen Elizabeth I. In other parts of Europe, like some cities in Spain, they can still be found today. But by far the most famous tradition surrounding St. Nicholas Day, and one which has survived down to modern times, is the giving of gifts, which likely comes from the stories of his incredible generosity to the poor and to children. The custom spread across Northern Europe over the last millennium, with St. Nicholas being said to give sweets and other presents to good children, and lumps of coal, or even potatoes, to naughty ones. Now we're getting close to Santa Claus, but we should note that his original gift-giving tour took place on his feast day, the 6th of December, rather than Christmas Eve. It's also worth mentioning that these original stories were often a lot stranger than their modern heirs. In many Northern European countries, St. Nicholas was said to be joined by a companion from local folklore, sometimes benevolence, but often quite frightening. While the saints handed out presents, it fell to his companion to carry out the darker task of punishing the children who'd been bad. This character is known by many names. Svarta Piet, or Black Piet in the Netherlands, 
Père Fouettard, or Old Man Whipper in France, and Schmutzli, the Dirty One, in Switzerland. While in Germany and Austria, he takes the downright demonic forms of Knecht Ruprecht and Krampus. You've probably heard of the latter, at least. I have to say, there's something very Northern European in these dark and foreboding figures juxtaposed with the Jolly Saints. My dad used to call these kinds of stories Germanic Moral Instruction. And I have yet to find a better description. So how did the Companions of St. Nicholas go from being spooky devils to fluffy reindeer and red-hatted elves? And how did the saint's gift-giving move from his feast day to Christmas Eve? Long story short, the more familiar traditions come to us from Scandinavia. In the Nordic countries, friendly nature spirits called Nissa and Tontu very similar to elves, both in their appearance and their general nature, have long been said to leave presents for children at Christmas time. When Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, and Finnish immigrants came to America, their stories merged with those of the Dutch, Germans, and English to form the modern character of Santa Claus. The cheery saints, clad in red and white robes, who leaves presents for children on Christmas Eve. As you probably know, the name Santa Claus derives from the Dutch Zinterklaas, their name for St. Nicholas. His other most popular title, Father Christmas, comes to us from England, where he has long been associated with Yuletide on top of his own feast day. Our modern image of Santa Claus is a combination of all these traditions I've discussed from across Northern Europe. Even so, it has deep roots in the Christian religion. From his generosity to children, to his great snowy beard and festive robes, which come from the iconographic tradition of depicting him as an old man in his red and white bishop's vestments. It's an urban legend that the modern picture of Santa Claus was invented by Coca-Cola advertisers, no matter how many times that made-up story gets repeated. There is some truth in the idea that Thomas Nast, the American Gilded Age cartoonist, compiled the elements of European folklore we've been talking about into the more familiar picture. It was Nast, for example, who seems to have come up with the notion that Santa lives at the North Pole. If that comes from an older source, I haven't been able to find it. But even if it was in the 19th century that these different motifs came together, nearly all the core ideas about Santa Claus have some older origin. I've included links in the show notes to historical images of St. Nicholas, so you can see for yourself how ancient these traditions really are. There's a lot more that could be said about St. Nicholas, whether in the form of Father Christmas, Santa Claus, or the Wonder Worker, as he's known in the East. But it's high time I wished you a Merry Christmas, and brought this episode to a close.
Thanks as ever to our patrons who make this show possible. For those considering a donation to the podcast, you can now find our first bonus episode on Patreon, available only to patrons. The topic is the myth of Pope Joan, the mysterious female pontiff who never was. So head on over to patreon.com slash hallowed to gain access to that and many future bonus episodes. And be sure to send an email to the address in the show notes with any final questions for our Q&A episode, which will be released on the 12th of January, 2023. Until then, the podcast is going on a month-long Christmas vacation, so I'll see you all in the new year. St. Nicholas is commemorated on the 6th of December throughout the Christian world. He is the patron of many causes, including children, travelers, sailors, merchants, repentant thieves, the unmarried, and even archers. I'm not really sure why, but there's a type of shooting contest called the St. Nicholas Round. Maybe it originated with games held on his feast day, but that's only my best guess. Along with the nations of Greece and Russia. May St. Nicholas the Wonder Worker remind us that Santa Claus is real. And may he come to our aid now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. May God grant you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.